think I better look around, make sure nobody's supposed to come up here and read before I <laughs> preach. But don't despair. I was sufficiently rebuked by my wife. I want you to know that meal we had today was unbelievable. Man, I tell you what, I think this congregation has the same requirements for uh, membership for the ladies that we had at Lehman Avenue. And that is, if you can cook, you can be a member. If you can't, forget it. <laughs> but it reminds me of the fellow that went to hold a gospel meeting out in the country. And uh, he and the master of the house were sitting in the living room and a little seven or eight year boy was sitting there with them and they were passing the time waiting for the meal to be prepared. And directly the man went into the kitchen to see what was holding things up. And the preacher decided to engage the young man in conversation and said, what are we having for dinner tonight? The little boy looked at him and said, buzzard. He said, are you sure it's buzzard? Maybe it was turkey or chicken or something like that. He said, no, it's buzzard. And so the preacher asked him, well, how do you know if it's buzzard? He said, well, I heard mommy and daddy talking the other night and, said, and one said to the other, said, well, we've got to have the old buzzard. Let's have Monday night for supper. I want this morning, this evening rather, to look back again at what we looked at this morning for a few moments, and that is the events there at the burning bush. If you have your Bible, open it to Exodus chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 6, and then verses 13 and 15. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horab, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will turn, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So the Lord saw, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God upon God. And then verses 15 to 15, then 13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Do you remember when you were in college or even in high school, and you had one of those classes that I didn't particularly care for, at least in high school, it was entitled American Literature. Remember that class? And one of the first things that you read that was produced by a purely, truly American author was actually a sermon, a sermon by a fellow by the name of Jonathan Edwards. 
The title of that sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you remember the reading at all, you remember that Jonathan Edwards believed that God was sitting up there in heaven and ready to grab you up at a moment's incitement and cast you into the deepest fiery pit of hell. And the only thing that was keeping you from descending into that abyss of fire and brimstone was a little sliver, a little sliver, no bigger than a hair on your head. You know, that's the attitude or thought that people have about God today. That God's an angry old man sitting up in heaven, ready to grab you up and throw you into the pit of hell and almost laugh with glee when he does it. But you and I know that's not the God of the Bible. Tonight, I want to think with you about the God that we worship. Somebody might say, well, we need to reserve that for the theologians. Let the, the theologians, the trained people talk about that. But wait a minute. As we suggested this morning, at this point in time, Moses has been a shepherd for many years. And this shepherd and another shepherd we'll talk about at the close of our lesson knows a whole lot more about theology than many people today. Notice what Moses says, I am that I am. And this holy presence in this burning bush. Now, when Moses was confronted, as we talked about this morning, he finally understood it was his obligation and he better go down there and do what God asked him to do. And when he perceived God was getting angry, he, he went. And later, Moses would sing of this God. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? That's Exodus 15 and verse 11. There are several things I want you to think about about this God that confronted Moses there in that burning bush that Moses then began to serve with great diligence. Number one, our God is not created in our image. Just recently, Gary Hill and I, Gary Hill being one of our teachers, preaches over here at Horton Chapel in Muhlenberg County, Kentucky. We went to, we were on our way to Africa to do a little mission work, but we went through Greece. And while we were there, we were exposed a great deal to Greek mythology. Those people in that ancient day formulated their gods in their own image. They were evil. They were, had base emotions, but our God is not like that. We are, in fact, a little amused by the idolatry of the ancient world. Again, if you have your Bible, open it to Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 17. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning of verse 9, down through verse 17. Just a real quick note about the background here. Isaiah was sharing with the Israelite people a message from God that they needed to change their way or they were going to lose part of that promise that God had given to Abraham and that is the land. You see, they had become infested with idolatry. The idolatry of the pagans around them, the very thing that God through Moses had warned them to avoid. And Isaiah literally, I don't know how else to say it, but pokes fun at anyone who would believe in the power of an idol. Notice what he says, those who make an image all of them are useless, not the people, the image. And their precious things shall not profit. 
They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all of his companions will be ashamed and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with the hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, the blacksmith, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out on the, with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man. And I love this next phrase. According to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. You see, he makes that wooden idol beautiful. Because he doesn't want his wife saying, get that ugly thing out of the house, will you? He wants it to be beautiful so it can remain in the house. He goes on. He cuts down cedars for himself. He takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. He may even plant a tree especially for this reason. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a God and worships it. He carves, makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I am see, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships it. Praise to it and said, deliver me for you are my God. What a graphic image that is. He's planted this tree and he's nurtured this tree and he's cared for this tree and he's taken care of it till it got big enough and he cuts it down and he takes part of it and makes a God. The rest of it he burns to cook his dinner. And then there's that image that many of these young people would never understand because they've lived all their life with central heat. Those of you that grew up with a fireplace know what it means to back up to that fireplace. Ah, oh, that feels good. That's exactly what he says. You take the wood remaining from your God and you burn it and you back up to it. Ah, now I'm warm. How ridiculous that is. As Isaiah tries to paint a picture of futility as these par people carve a God from wood or stone and then bow down and worship it. But what difference is it if our God is carved out of wood or carved out of stone or carved out of our own imaginations and has only the qualities that we attribute to it or what difference is it if the God that we create of our own has only the demands that we are willing to obey? Nothing of great consequence will my God ask of me. Oh no, my God is an easy God. My God is always loving, never will condemn anyone. The God we worship does not have the base qualities of man, greed, avarice, lust, etc. He is pure and he is holy. But secondly, along this line, 
Our God, the God we worship, is the eternal cause of all we see. Now, one of our lessons, I believe tomorrow night, we're going to get into this a little more. When we talk about the nature of God and the God we worship, we need to understand and impress upon ourselves so we can impress upon others that our God is the eternal first cause of all that we see. The uncaused cause. Think about this for a moment, a scientific truth, a philosophical truth is that nothing exists without a cause. You may have heard it expressed something like this. Every, cause, every uh, effect has an equal and opposite cause or it creates an equal and opposite reaction. Everything that exists has a cause. And that cause has to be sufficient to cause the effect. I was sitting here just a moment ago looking at these pews and I was thinking about how many other church buildings I've been in that have pews just exactly like these. Now, I have over the years piddled a little bit with wood and I have some walnut in my shop and I keep thinking I'm going to make a little deacon's bench for our house. I've been thinking that for about 20 years. It reminds me of the story about the fellow who, who told his wife, said, now look, you asked me to do that and I told you I would do it. You don't have to remind me about it every six months. When I was thinking about how these pews are made, and as I thought about that, I thought about, you know, it took a great deal of skill to make these pews. Now you can't take just anybody and give them a saw and a hammer and a plane and expect them to come up with a piece of furniture or like this pulpit or that Lord's table or any one of these pews. The, the, the cause of those things has to be sufficient for the cause or for the effect. Think about all that we see, everything that exists today, not only the physical world, but the mind and the emotional world that you and I live in. What is the only sufficient cause for that effect? It's the eternal mind, the eternal I am. I am that I am the eternally existent one, the one who with the word called this world into existence, the one who with that same word judged this world and purged it by water, and the same one who with the same word, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, will cause this world to cease to exist. And just as he called it into existence, he will cause it to pass out of existence with that one single solitary word the eternal great cause. He is the one that's greater than all that I see. He is the one who, as we will see, created all things. So our God, number one, is not created in our image. He is the eternally sufficient one, the great I am. Our God also is a God who has spoken. God is not one who created this world as we'll see in just a few moments and put mankind here and left him to wander and grope through life for meaning. Now I have to admit some following such a course might find meaning, might find the good. I remember my coach in high school when you made a good catch or something like that, he would say, well, even a blind hog Stumbling through the forest will stumble upon an acorn from now and, now, now and again. And that's true. 
even a person living against the will of God might find the good in life. But the reality is God does not expect us to grope through this life looking for meaning. Most of those left to their own devices will not find the meaning in life. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 10, Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23, the weeping prophet Jeremiah said this, Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse, y'all have to pardon me. I've got a new Bible up here and it takes me a minute or two to get to those passages. I wore the other one completely out. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 20, 23. Oh Lord, I know the way of man is not within himself. It is not in a man who walks to direct his own step. Man left to his own devices soon, soon ends up in the depths of sin. In Romans chapter one, as Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome, he makes that point in the very first chapter, Romans chapter one, beginning of verse 18, the apostle Paul shows us where mankind and individual men end up when they leave themselves to their own devices and ignore the word of God. Hear what Paul says, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from the heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. It's clear, it's obvious. For God has shown it to them because what may be known of God is made manifest. God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But because they knew not God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Let me stop here and digress for just a moment. Look at that phrase. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The wisdom of the day says everything you see came from the Big Bang. The Big Bang of what? Well, there was this compressed matter that was no bigger than the period at the end of the sentence in your Bible. What? And then something happened, a big bang happened and that little mass of matter exploded and became the universe. One of our teachers at the National School of Preaching, Brother Doug Couch, taught a class one time entitled, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. <laughs> you really believe that? You're supposed to be a smart man and you believe that and then you poke fun at me because I believe an almighty, all wise, eternal being brought this world into existence. Uh, to be honest with you, that's a whole lot more credible than that period exploding into all we see. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible. Not only that, I, and I, I got to, stay on topic here, but not only that, look at what people today are saying is normal. 
Look at what people today are saying is normal. And you know what I'm talking about. That's absurd. It's absurd. I tell people that, uh, you know, people who live out in the country, not many of them are atheists and not many of them believe in evolution. You know why? They know that horses produce horses and cows have cows and dogs have puppies and kittens have, or cats have kittens. They know how it works. You can't convince them differently. And they know that you got to have a boy dog and a girl dog to make puppies. Wise and you, how foolish can you be? But they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And I think it's very important that that passage be translated for the lie. What's the lie? The lie is God doesn't exist. There's no all supreme, all powerful, all good, all benevolent God out there. They exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Then he describes the depths of sin and immorality to which people descend when they believe the lie. Man left to his own devices generally does not find the good in life. But you see, God has spoken. Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. God who at various times has spoken in times past through the prophets, but have in these last days spoken to us by his son. Let's turn over and look at that passage for just a moment. Again, one of the things I try to impress on my students at the National School of Preaching is analyze a sentence to see what the sentence is actually saying. And if you'll look at that sentence, Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two, you'll notice that the sentence has something very profound. God who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. The basic sentence there is God has spoken. All the rest of it is window dressing telling us how he did that. God has spoken. What a profound thought that that same eternal God that created the world, that same eternal God that brought it all into existence has spoken among other things that he has said. What does that son of his say to us? John chapter 10 and verse 10. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That God we worship is a God who has spoken. Thirdly, that God that confronted Moses in the burning bush is the creator. We've mentioned that in a roundabout sort of way thus far, but let's sit down and think about that for just a moment. Let's sit right there for a moment. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, God identifies himself to Moses as the Almighty. Some of you that are older, even older than I am, may remember that folks in times past used to refer to God that way, the Almighty. 
We don't do that anymore. Uh, even at Freed Hardeman, when I was there back in the 70s, and Derek may tell us that whether they do it anymore and do it now, I never remember any of my instructors referring to God as the Almighty. But he identified himself that way to, to Abraham. The word translated Almighty as El Shaddai, sometimes translated the Lord of hosts, the Almighty One. He likewise identifies himself to Moses in Exodus 6 and verse 3 as the Almighty God, the Lord God Almighty. And in the book of Revelation, he's identified as the Lord God Almighty or the Almighty at least six times in the book of Revelation. The Lord God Almighty. And Genesis tells us the story of his creative power. As we read that beautiful story in Genesis chapter 1, and chapter two of God's creative power. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And then it goes on to describe how repeatedly God spoke and something came into existence. God spoke and from nothing he created all that we see. And then in Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 31, the passage that's so meaningful to us, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let me stop right there. I've often been asked the question, what does that phrase mean, let us make man in our image? Well, I know the Bible talks about God having a finger and God having ears and eyes and that kind of thing. That's not what that's talking about. That's talking about qualities that we possess in common with God that other created beings do not possess. For example, mankind can reason in the abstract. How many of you have thought about what life was like before you got here? Animals don't do that. Your dog at home, Fido, he doesn't care what it was like before he got here. He has no way of no concept whatsoever of that. How many of you have thought about what it's going to be like when you're gone? I've thought about that I don't know how many times. You see, young people, I grew up in a time when you actually had to pick up a telephone and dial. We didn't have any cell phones. Our messenger was mama coming to the back door and say, Mike, it's supper time. And I think about what has changed since I was a kid, you know, I remember when LPs came out. Some of y'all remember that, yeah. First you had 33 and third RPMs, then you had 45s, then you had 33 RPMs. Then the next thing, boy, everybody got really, really, I mean, excited when eight-track tapes came out. Everybody went out and bought one, hung it under their dashboard. Yeah, look here, I got these eight-track tapes, man, they're cool. And then that went out and you got cassette tapes, remember? You took that thing out, put a cassette... Or you got a new car and had a cassette player in the dashboard. Now we were uptown. Wasn't that last? Seven, eight years? Then CDs. 
Man, I got a hundred cassettes. What? <laughs> so you got a tape play. I mean, you got a computer and you, you tried to get those things over on a CD. Now you're okay, right? Now you got serious radio. You know what I mean? They, we bought a new car. It doesn't even have a CD player in it. You can't get one. Pictures. I remember when Polaroids were the thing. Man, that was great. Take a picture, 60 seconds, you see the picture. Man, that was marvelous. Because otherwise you had that film in there and you took pictures and you can only take two now because those things were expensive. You didn't know what it looked like till you got home and got it developed. Now you take that uh, digital camera, pop, 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 you just take thousands of pictures because you can say, oh, that's no good, take another one. But I, I, I tell my son, this generation, when they get old, they won't have any pictures. You know, we got albums of pictures of my mama and my grandmama and my kids and this generation, they won't have any pictures. You know why? They're on a computer. Somebody says, well, I got them on the computer. Yeah, right. How many different operating systems have come out since computers? See, my first computer, you had them floppies. You had to swap swap them around. Then they came out with the hard floppies and then the hard drives and then the external hard drives and the sea. Those pictures are not going to last long unless you put them in some real, not virtual format because it's going to change. Imagine Look at how the world has changed. And the book of Genesis tells us of the creative power of God that made all of this possible. But how are we in the image of God? We can create that stuff. We created that. Somebody sat around and thought, you know, it would be great if we could transmit the, the human voice across a, a copper wire. Oh, that's Thomas Edison. Remember him? And that started it all. What animal do you know that's ever created anything? I remember back some years ago when they supposedly taught this gorilla how to talk. Some of y'all remember that? All they, did, all they did was teach him how to respond to symbols. You know, you can teach your dog to respond to certain stimuli. What I wanted him to do was turn that at gorilla loose and let him go back in the jungle and see if he taught any other gorillas how to talk. We're created in the image of God. We can reason the abstract. Now, I'm going to get in trouble with some of you. know I am, but I'm going to say it anyway. We can love. We can emote in a way no animal can. Now, don't come up to me after service and say, no, no, my doggy loves me. No, your doggy doesn't love you. You have trained that animal. You come home and the animal comes running up to you and you talk nice to him. You pat him on the head. You feed him. You pet him. You make sure his bed's nice and soft and he's warm and he has everything he needs. You have trained that animal. Here's what you do. For the next two weeks when you come home, don't talk nice to that dog. Fuss at that dog and give him a good swift kick in the teeth and see what he does after two weeks. You see, that dog can't love you the way mankind loves, the way God loves. How many of you know a mother who has a son who is a rotten, low-down scoundrel? 
but mama loves him. Just like God loves us when we are no good. Moving on. He created us in his own image. Genesis chapter two, verse seven. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And then the part that we all should be so grateful for, Genesis two eighteen. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground of the Lord, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. You see, Adam was alone and that was the only thing in God's creation that was not good. And so God called, caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he brought in, uh, made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then in chapter three and verse 20, and Adam called his, name, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Our God is the creator. And the book of Genesis tells us of his, his marvelous creative power. And that tells us three things. Number one, you and I have dignity, inherent dignity. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to be anything. We are of great value because we are made in God's image. From the moment of conception to the time we drink, breathe our last breath, we are human beings created in God's image and are valuable and should be valued because we're created in God's image. We have dignity. And brethren, that's one of the problems in our society today. We as a society and many as individuals have lost respect for the dignity of life. We've lost respect for individuals. We don't see them as individuals anymore. But they are individual human beings created in the image of God. Secondly, it tells me that God has a prior claim on me. He created me and because he created me, he has the right to claim me. You remember in the book of Jeremiah and again in the book of Isaiah, in fact, both of those prophets used the potter and the clay as an example. Doesn't the potter have the right if he starts working with the clay and makes a mistake to squash it back down and start over again? Certainly he does. He has a prior claim on us. As the potter in the clay, Jeremiah chapter 18, Romans chapter nine and verse 21. But God wants to form each of us. God wants to form you. God wants to form me, not as a worm, but as an eagle. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. People have asked me over the years, what's your favorite Bible passage? I've got so many, but one of, my, one of them is Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 30 and 31. Let's read from verse 29. He gives power to the weak. 
Let's back up all the way to 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way, Lord's way is hidden from, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's what God wants for you. And then thirdly, the fact that God created us tells us of our origin and our destiny. Tells us where we came from and tells us where we're going. But quickly, because our time is getting away. We also know that our God is a God who is involved in the lives of men. There was a movement some years ago called deism that said that God is trans, totally transcendent. God is transcendent into these above this world. They said God is totally transcendent, meaning he created this world, set it in order, and he's kind of like a, a, a clock. He started it up, wound it up, and he set it down and he ignores it. And he's waiting for it to run down. But our God is, is while he's transcendent, is not uninvolved. That God of the deist is not my God, it's not your God. Our God hears and answers our prayers. John 5, verses 14 and 15. Paul, uh, John says there, we can have confidence in that reality. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Our God is a God who remembers his children. In Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, it tells us that God remembers us and even knows the number of the hairs on your head. Every time I think about that, I kind of get tickled. Some of us, that number's a little higher than others, isn't it, brother? Now, I, you know, I, I know my wife pretty intimately, and she knows me, but I dare say she doesn't know how many hairs are on my head. But God does. God remembers his children. Noah in the ark, Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1 the Bible says God remembered Noah. In Exodus chapter 2 and verse 24, it tells us that God remembered his people down there in slavery in Egypt and the covenant that he'd made with, uh, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, and Matthew chapter 6, you can write those verses down, look at them after service, tells us that God is interested in us and God is involved with our lives he knows that we need nutrition. He knows that we need clothing. He knows that we need places of abode. And he will provide all of that if we'll seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. God is a God who watches over his own. We mentioned Romans 8 verse 31 this morning, that God be for us, who can be against us? In the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, a tremendous passage in the book of Ephesians as Paul is writing to that group of people and wanting them to appreciate, as we spoke of this morning, the manifold blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter four 
And I won't read all of this in Ephesians chapter four, verses one, all the way down through verse 21. He tells us, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter three. I meant to change that. He tells us of the mystery of God and how powerful it is. But let's, let's just read verses 17 and following that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now catch this. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that oft quoted passage, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. God is a God who hears and answers our prayers. God is a God who remembers his children. Our God is a God who watches out for his own. And our God is a God who wants us to have the abundant life. John 10 and verse 10, Jesus says that was one of the reasons he came, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. You see, our God is a God of love and mercy. And John really sums that all up when he says in 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16, God is love because it's God's will that none should be lost. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 6, the Bible says that God wills that all should come to a knowledge and be saved. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, God doesn't want any to be lost, but to all come to, to come to repentance. And as I suggested, the apostle John sums it up so well when he said, God is love. The God we worship is the God of the Bible, not the God of man's own creation, not the angry God that some think he is. And again, as we did this morning, I, I tell you, I, I don't know where you are with God tonight. I'm like the Apostle Paul. I would that all men were such as I am in what is, I believe, a good relationship with God. Nearing the end of my life, I think I can say with the Apostle Paul, I fought the good fight. I've kept finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, but not only to me, but to all those that love is appearing. Where are you with God? Can you say that? The God we worship does not want you to be lost. I hear people say, why will God send someone to hell? He doesn't. He doesn't send anybody to hell. Have you ever heard the phrase, heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people? You heard that? Go like this if you have. Did you know Jesus said hell is a prepared place for a prepared people? Matthew chapter 25, he says that he will cast the unrighteous into outer darkness, into hell, a place prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't send anybody to hell, but people choose to go there. Why is beyond me? Do you tonight need to obey the gospel? All things are ready. We're prepared. We're desirous. We're willing to help you. 
If you need prayers of the saints to be restored, the God whom we worship is a God who cares for you, who will hear your prayers, who wants the best for you. He loves you. He sent his son to die. He's displayed his grace, his mercy. Will you take advantage of that if you need to do so right now by coming to the front as we stand together and sing?